the Cybersecurity and Compliance Podcast with Craig Petronella. Learn about the most current IT security threats in ransomware, phishing, business email compromise, cybercrime tactics, cyber heist schemes, social engineering scams, as well as hints and tips from leading professionals to help you prevent hackers from penetrating your network and dropping ransomware or malware payloads. This podcast will arm you with the best info to defend your network against the latest cyber crimes. Don't forget to like and subscribe. And now, here's your host, Craig Petronella. You're listening to Cybersecurity and Compliance with Craig Petronella. Visit us online at petronellatech.com. Well, good to connect with you, Dan. Yep, absolutely. So tell me more about Vetter Price. Uh, all right, so Vetter Price is a, a law firm of about 300 lawyers um, founded in Chicago in the 1950s. Uh, about 200 of our lawyers are in Chicago. We've got offices in LA, San Francisco, New York, DC, London, and Singapore. Uh, our biggest practice groups are our employment uh, employment labor group. It's probably one of what we're most known for, one of the top employment labor practices in the country. Um, we've got, um, an outstanding capital markets group, uh, corporate group, uh, litigation group that spans, uh, all kinds of different civil litigation, white collar criminal litigation. Uh, and we've got a practice based on, which is called our global transport finance practice, which is our, our fancy way of saying we help people buy and sell airplanes and helicopters. Um, oh, wow. which is a really niche practice. Um, and it's a pretty big practice in the group. Apparently there are a lot of airplanes and, and things to be bought and sold and leased and all that. Oh, wow. Um, and I'm not sure how we got into it. I guess legend has it um, uh, that we had a client who, who was in that space and decided to join the firm and brought the practice with them. And it's just grown over the past decade. So, you know, if you've got a client who wants a private jet or even an airline that's looking to buy a, Boeing seven, whatever, or Airbus. Um, we're kind of the go-to people for that. Um, <laughs> I'm in our intellectual property practice, which has 11 attorneys. We're all based in Chicago, um, full service intellectual property practice, handling every, all patent, trademark, trade secret, copyright technology. Um, we manage a lot of patent portfolios. We manage a lot of trademark portfolios. We also do uh, a bunch of litigation. We've got folks that, litigate all the time, admitted in federal courts, admitted in the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, so we do it all for our clients. We, we act as very frequently their outside in-house IP counsel, uh, which is a great role and a great role for me because I was in-house IP counsel for a major, um, for $14 billion consumer packaged goods company for about a dozen years. And so you know, being the outside counsel that thinks like the inside counsel, um, you know, understands what the client needs because I spent more than half my career as the client and therefore looks at um, client problems and client relationships, I think, differently than most outside counsel do. Um, Vetter Price is really a great fit for me because they encourage that, you know, they um, they they are... Because we're a medium-sized firm, even though we're in Chicago, we're not at Chicago rates for some of the bigger firms. Um, and I always thought when I was the client, the kind of the medium-sized regional, even though we're not really regional, the two-thirds of our lawyers are in Chicago, 
those medium-sized firms offer by far the best value. They have the the they have you know, as good a lawyer as any other firms that you'll find anywhere else, except you're not paying for the Park Avenue Manhattan real estate. You're not paying for gold-plated ceilings in the lobby meant to impress meant to impress clients, but don't do anything to a judge. Um, and and so this is really a great kind of sweet spot for for an attorney like me. So I'm loving it. That's awesome. So tell me, where does somebody start with intellectual property? I mean, I, I know what intellectual property is, I think, <laughs> probably not at the depth that you do. <laughs> um, but, you know, uh, I'm a small business owner, I have a certain methodology on things, and I'm assuming that that's intellectual property. And, um, you know, how, what do you recommend that our viewers do? Like, what do they, where do they start? You know, can you shed some light on that, maybe? Yeah, look, intellectual property is all about intellectual property is the legal means by which you make what makes you different exclusive to you. Right. So so if you think about it's really simple, kind of put it in the supply and demand model. Right. Um, If you're the only one who can offer something, you can charge a higher price. You can make people come to you rather than go to other people. Okay, so. Um, so intellectual property is the way um, the legal system, and there's different aspects of intellectual property, which I'll talk about in a second, but it's a legal system by which you make sure other people aren't doing the things that you do. And if you can keep other people from doing the things that you do, you can get market share and you can charge higher prices, right? Intellectual property is, is, is essentially a legal monopoly. Right. Um, monopolies are bad because it makes consumers pay higher prices. Right. You can dominate the market and all that. But if you've got something truly innovative and valuable, um, our public policy is to encourage innovation by rewarding innovation by giving you that legal monopoly. So if you think about intellectual property, it's really that way that you build a fence around the thing that you do. Right. I mean, you understand if you have a house and you don't want people coming up and knocking on your door, you build a fence around it. Right. Same thing, you know, and, and and the 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 more valuable the property, maybe the farther out you build the fence, right? Um, and and intellectual property builds that fence. So, um, and, and I think about it in that context. Now, there's lots of ways that you can do that. Um, people, I think, when you say, "Well, do you have any intellectual property?" and they'll shake their head, they'll go, "No," and you go, "Oh, yeah, you, I'm sure you do, right?" Because if you didn't you would do the exact same thing as your competitors exactly the same way, which you don't. Nobody does, right? right. Um, but they're usually thinking, well, I don't have any patents. Well, that may be true, but but patents are, are really valuable kinds of intellectual property because they give you that right to exclude others from whatever it is you've patented. But they're expensive to get. It's not certain that you'll get one. They're expensive to enforce. It's not certain that you'll get one. You have to prove it to the patent office, right? So, but that's one valuable method of of getting exclusivity of building that fence. Um, If you've got, you know, a brand that makes people come to associate a particular brand with a particular quality of good or service, and they say, I want that quality. I want that thing that I know what it is every time I get it. Um, nobody else can offer that. That's how I know I'm getting it from you, right? That's what a trademark is, right? Um, trade secrets are probably the most common and in a lot of ways, most valuable kind of intellectual property. And they're, they're the intellectual property that people 
think about the least, but it's kind of the most obvious, right? Um, some of the most valuable pieces of intellectual property in the world are trade secrets, Coca-Cola's formula, right? If you look at a bottle of Coca-Cola Coca -Cola, and it lists the ingredients, right? And it says natural flavors and artificial flavors. If you know how to do something that your competitors don't know how to do or don't know that you know how to do, you have an advantage, right? Because um, they can't do it. And even if they could figure it out, right? Because it's not that complicated. So unlike a patent, you know, we have to prove that it's not obvious and it's, you know, really novel. A trade secret doesn't have to be novel. A trade secret can be just doing something old, but in a new way or something old that you adapted. You don't have to prove that it's novel or not obvious. But what it does is if your competitors don't know what you know, you have that head start. And that acts as a fence because in order for them to do what you're doing, they'd have to invest a whole bunch of money, right? And so that keeps you, that gives you that advantage. Um, yeah, so trade secrets can be really, really valuable because uh, if you know something that your competitors don't know, the, the fence is that they have to invest a lot of money to figure out what to do. So even if they could reverse engineer it, that's going to take them time and money. And so you have that head start. That head start is a form of exclusivity. Um, and when you ask people, hey, do you know, you know, are you doing the same thing as your competitors exactly the same way? They'll all say no. Then you say, okay, great. You know then that you have intellectual property. And they'll go, I do. You say, do you know where it is and how you're protecting it? And you get a fearful look on their face, especially if they're like the CEO, right? Because they're like, no, I don't know that. Um, and it's because Bob in the manufacturing plant knows how to turn the turn the knobs and move the levers on the machine to make the machine run right. Right. Except he hasn't told anybody. He doesn't know that he's creating intellectual property. And you, the CEO, don't know what's going on, right? Right. And you haven't told your 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 employees, you haven't created this important IP culture where you've encouraged people to think about intellectual property that way. Because what, hap what happens if you've got 20 manufacturing plants and you've got that machine in every plant and Bob didn't tell anybody how to run that machine better, right? You're losing valuable technology because you haven't encouraged people to talk about their intellectual property. So, so like in the case yeah. with Coca-Cola, sure. like, you know, they're probably using some off-the-shelf ingredients that anyone yeah. can get, right? So the, the science or the, the trade secret is how they mix it, how they prepare it, and then the, yeah. you know, the, the consistency, exactly. right? So how exactly. do they, so like, how do they protect that um, mm -hmm. from, from Pepsi stealing Coke's secret, right? But how do you also protect it from your employees? You know, so maybe somebody gets bribed or, you know, exfiltrated that secret. Like, how do you, how does somebody go about doing that? So, so Coca-Cola would do a couple of things. Um, one is you obviously have to limit access, right? Um, it's got to be on a need-to-know basis, and probably very few people have a need-to-know, right? So um, that's that's number one, right? Number two is wherever that information is stored needs to be absolutely locked down, secure, right? You, it is probably on a piece of paper in a vault somewhere, right? Right. Probably not even on a server, not Tronic, right? Um, in a safe deposit box, you know, with with uh, Mission Impossible, like, scan, you know, retinal scanning kind of technology, something right. like that, <laughs> right? Um, uh, and um, and then you need your employees to have, obviously, the, you know, the, the lowest hanging fruit, which is obvious for everybody, is you need employees to have NDAs, right? Mm -hmm. uh, not because that prevents anybody from doing anything. People breach contracts and disclose things all the time. 
But if you don't have an NDA, um, a court's going to say, well, you didn't adequately protect your trade secrets because you didn't even do the easiest thing possible, right? So, right. But, but really, it is about controlling need to know and then physically controlling access to the information, right? And so, you know, how many people actually know it? Probably not many. I mean, you disperse the information, right? So procurement knows what to buy in terms of ingredients. Mm -hmm. Knowing what to buy in terms of ingredients doesn't help you any. I, I know the ingredients that might go into chocolate chip cookies, but if I mix them up the wrong way, it's going to taste awful, right? So just knowing the ingredients doesn't help you, right? Procurement doesn't need to know anything about how it's mixed up. So circling back to, to my world. So like in our world, you yep. know, I, I obviously do cybersecurity and compliance and I help those that are in regulated spaces. That's my target, right? So for mm -hmm. healthcare, for example, they're subject to HIPAA regulation, right? So if we go back to yep. um, the, the onion concept, I, I like to, to talk about the onion concept, which is layering different things together, different ingredients together. And like you talked about Coca-Cola, you know, maybe only, um, they you know, people might know the ingredients, but they don't know the quantities or how to apply the ingredients in a certain methodology to, pr to produce the same result over and over. So in my world in regulation, there might be off the shelf components. There might be a, fr a firewall, for example, there might be security um, software for the endpoint, such as antivirus or anti-malware. There might be, um, something encryption and you know security control there so these are obviously things that are um some of which are freely available some of which are open source some of which are purchased from commercial software vendors and or hardware manufacturers as well as goes into physical spaces too so if we have um know-how methodology trade secrets as as you would discuss um obviously that we would want to protect that so how does one go yep. about starting that road when when the you don't know where to start what do you recommend yeah that, that's a great that's a great question so so you know if you look at my background right then the, the top thing is identify ip right um i've helped a lot of clients with this and really there, there's um there are a couple of things one first of all you're right that it's daunting and so not to you know sugarcoat it but sure. if you've got years, months, decades worth of know-how and trade secrets that you haven't documented, right, it's going to be really, really hard to do any kind of, you know, audit to figure out what all those things are. There's right. too much institutional knowledge. It's too spread out, right? But you have to start. But you somewhere. have to start somewhere, though, right? Because, like, so, you know, if, if, yeah, if one person, let's, let's say somewhere. use me as the example, you know, we've been in business over 18 years. It, and I'm sure I have a lot of intellectual property stuck in my brain. <laughs> and if I don't take the step right. to start documenting and extracting that out of my head, if I get hit by a bus, God forbid, then my company might cease to exist or we might be at a, a significant um, handicap. Right. You know, so so right. as we start that journey, is there um, some recommended training or, or some methodology that you recommend that we, we, uh, go through before we re or is this, are my two, um, novice to come to somebody like you first, like wh where does somebody start? Yeah. So, so first off you start from the present, right? 
you, you can always go back and do the past. That's really, really labor intensive. But as we said, you have to start somewhere. So you sure. start from the present, right? Going forward, starting today, when you discover a new or better way of doing something, you document it, right? Now, what you do with that documentation is a sep- separate issue. You know, as we said, you know, Coca-Cola has to monitor where that documentation is, where it's held, who has access to it. Right. But it's got to be written down somewhere, right? Um, right? So what you do is starting today, you you train your employees, first of all, about what intellectual property is, why it's important. You create that culture of intellectual property, right? Where they are, they are attuned to the fact that they are doing something that is existentially valuable. um, So then starting today, when people think of new things that create value for the company, they document it somewhere. You know, in the old days, you would write it down in a lab notebook, right? Um, but, But you can do it anywhere, right? And then somebody like you can figure out how to make sure that that's secure, but you got to start, start somewhere. So that's number one, you start there. Um, You can incentivize that kind of activity. Now, if you're a smaller company, you might not have something like, you know, um, a patent incentive or invention incentive program, right? A lot of bigger companies will have programs where, where when you submit an invention disclosure, a committee will look at it. If you file for a patent, you get some sort of award, right? Um, one of the interesting things that I found when I was when I was in house is that there were two reasons that the committee would decide not to file for patent on something. One was the invention was just no good, right? It wasn't wasn't all that valuable. It wasn't novel. We figured somebody had already done it, right? Um, the other reason was because patents are public, it was better kept as a trade secret. It wasn't that it wasn't valuable. It just wasn't valuable as a patent because patents have to be disclosed, right? Um, well, if you only give awards for things that you're going to file a patent on, then you're essentially, from a value and from a culture standpoint, you're equating that valuable trade secret with something that has no value at all, right? And what happens is people stop documenting and submitting to the IP committee their really valuable trade secrets. Well, that's a bad thing, right? So, so what we did is we instituted a trade secret award as well as just a patent award. Which, which turned out to be a really kind of novel approach to things. Cause I talked to a lot of people and they're like, no, we don't do that. And then the question is, well, why right. now all of a sudden people were disclosing things that they knew we probably weren't going to file for patent on, but they knew that they would benefit anyway. Right. And you're not talking a lot of money, you know, right. maybe a couple hundred dollars. Right. Um, and it was a rounding error for a big company that had a big, you know, R and D budget anyway, but it's important to the employees. Right. And that's part of that managing the ip culture right um so that's one good way of where you start you say i'm going to implement this program so that starting today i'm going to get my trade secrets right you're going to write those down the other thing that you do is and i've done this with a number of clients is is i've sent them a questionnaire and it's like two to three pages and it's not legalese it's plain english and it just asks questions like what do you do that's different that gives you value what are the things that enable you to make something better, faster, cheaper, right? Um, what are the technologies you use that if your competitors knew would be harmful to your business, right? And, and you don't have one person responsible for getting all of that information. You send that questionnaire out to people who have different touch points within the organization, right? And, and, and you, you don't capture 100%, right? But maybe if you capture 50%, you're infinitely better than what you were, 
right? right? And so that questionnaire can be enormously helpful in just helping people level set what they've already got. That's how you kind of attack the past part of things, okay. right? So, so I would say it's really a combination of a couple of things. One, um, creating a culture of innovation and intellectual property protection so people know that it's valuable and are proactive about documenting and disclosing it. Um, making sure that people do document and disclose it and then you secure it. Um, and then three, slowly, you know, going through a process where you're asking the important stakeholders to fill out some sort of a questionnaire. And there's no time frame, right? I mean, you haven't been doing it for 20 years. It's not like you send it out and say, I need this by tomorrow, right? right. You have people take their time and do it. Um, and, and you slowly attack attack the past. If you do those three things, creating a culture of innovation, um, rewarding um, trade secret disclosures and securing them, and attacking the past with basically a simple questionnaire that you distribute to the stakeholders, you will go a long way towards identifying what that what those valuable trade secrets and pieces of intellectual property are. And, and so say you, say you go through the exercise, which is fantastic information. So you go through the exercise, you incorporate that into your business, into your culture, like you suggested. Is the protection mechanism mm -hmm. of a trade secret the same as going after a patent? Like, how do you protect that trade secret or secrets that you've discovered? Right. So, so a patent, um, if you infringe a patent, that means that you are practicing the invention that's patented. You can do that and frequently do without even knowing that there's a patent out there. Right. There's no intent involved. Right. You practice the invention. Somebody says, hey, I've got a patent on that. Then you go to them and sue whatever. Right. Um, there is an intent, um, an act like a bad act that is associated with trade secret misappropriation. Right. You need to um, have taken the trade secret in a way so it was disclosed to you in a way that it shouldn't have been, or you acquired it in a way that you shouldn't have, and then you used it, right? Um, so in order to enforce your trade secret, um, you need to do really two things. One, you need to protect it to make sure that other people aren't disclosing it, because if they're disclosing it, um, then that's where the misappropriation comes from, right? And and then number two you're going to have to aggressively act against people that are using it improperly, who have acquired it improperly, right? If somebody reverse engineers a trade secret, you can't do anything to stop them, right? Um, that's, the, that's, the, uh, that's the downside of a trade secret, right? Is that the only way that you're protecting it is the fact that you're keeping it a secret. So if somebody figures it out, you know, you, they figured it out. The benefit of your trade secret is, well, you've had a head start, right? So that's valuable. Oftentimes when your trade secrets are the most important invention, and especially where they're easily duplicated or the outcome is easily duplicated, even if you don't do it exactly the same way, you have to continue to innovate because the trade secret may only be valuable for a couple of years, right? Because right. somebody can figure it out. Right. And if you don't continue to develop more trade secrets, you lose that head start. The, the, the name of the game in trade secrets is either you have one of those really rare trade secrets like the Coke formula, 
that is just impossible to figure out, reverse engineer, known to maybe two people on the entire planet, right? right? Or you have trade secrets that give you a head start and you keep innovating to maintain that trade secret, to maintain that head start. Because if you don't, somebody catches up and then they pass you, right? That's the majority of trade secrets. They're not valuable for very long um, because other people can figure them out. So you continue to innovate. Okay. All right. Excellent information. So, so the most important, the most important thing, Craig, is really you have to protect it. Sure. You have to have NDAs. You have to have, to have taken the steps to protect it. What a, what a court will look at, um, and let's back up for a second. You know, patents come from the Constitution. Um, the Constitution says that the government will award to uh, uh, inventors and authors. Uh, a limited monopoly in order to progress the useful arts and sciences. Okay. The reason why it progresses the useful arts and sciences is because you actually have to publish your invention. Right. And if you publish it, which is what the patent is, it's a public document. Mm-hmm. Um, if you publish it, right, other people can learn from it. They can right. improve on it. They can design around it, make something better, right? I, I always find it funny when a client will come to me all um They'll be, they'll be highly agitated by the fact that, you know, the competitor designed around their patent as if they did something nefarious and I have to explain to them, no, nah, it's kind of the way the kind system of the is supposed of, to work. Right, right. It's kind of the purpose of, of disclosing it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's why scientists publish articles. Um, so the, the public policy is you disclose your important inventions, right? That's right. how science works. Sure. So 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 the on the other hand, the policy is, it's very hard to protect trade secrets because we don't like people keeping things secret. So, so the first thing you have to do to protect your trade secret is actually take the reasonable steps to keep it secret. If a court looks and says, I don't care if it was stolen, if you didn't do all the reasonable steps you should have done to keep it secret, we're not going to protect it for you. So those NDAs, those restricting access, that's the most important first step. And that goes into our world where our specialty with cybersecurity and layers and protecting digital assets and things like that. Um, All fantastic information. So uh, my question that um, comes to mind at the moment is, is there some convergence of copyright law and protecting trade secrets? Because, you know, so I spoke about copyright. So I'm sure there's some maybe convergence or some parallel to copyright law. And I'm a novice, so I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I'm not a lawyer, but I, I have written multiple books um, yep. and I do have the little copyright thing on there <laughs> to protect my works. But yep. I'll be honest, I don't know what the depth of that protection is, what it gives me and all that fun stuff. So uh, as the attorney, please, <laughs> please shed some light for us on that. Yeah, copyrights are very similar, similar to patents. Um, in terms of the protection and the and the scheme, um, a copyright exists the moment that you commit your original expression into a tangible medium, written down, either on paper and pencil, paper and pen, or in code on a hard drive on a you know drive somewhere. Right, the minute or you know a picture on a canvas. Right, it's the actual expression. The copyright is infringed when somebody copies that expression, right? <clears throat> the, the, the typical copyright infringement test is, did you have access to the copyright? And is the resulting work product substantially similar, right? Because that would show copying. Right. You almost never have direct evidence of copying. 
um, mostly it's access plus similarity usually shows copy, right? <clears throat> but like trade secrets, if I independently come up with the same expression that you had, I independently write the same book that you did. I'm, you know, in North Korea, I had no idea what your book was. I could have never had access to, and I independently come up with it. And it doesn't matter if it's exactly the same. That's not copyright infringement because I haven't actually copied it. I've independently developed it. Okay. In that sense, it's a little bit like trade secret. Um, most copyrights are published. And by published, <coughs> it doesn't necessarily mean it's public um, because you could have copyrights in your source code for your software, which you keep as a trade secret, in which case, you know, your copyright and your trade secret kind of coexist. Um, uh, to the extent that somebody accesses that source code, they've likely, and then copies it somehow, they've likely committed two acts, right? They've trade secret misappropriation if you've protected your, your source code, right? And copyright infringement. Whereas you can't have trade secret misappropriation and patent infringement because a patent is never a trade secret, right? right. So, so that's kind of the overlap in copyright. Copyright is similar to trade secret in the sense that <clears throat> in order to keep that, um, keep that protection, you have to continue to innovate because copyright doesn't protect anything that's functional. It will only protect the actual expression, which is important because when you think of software, there's a million ways to write code to do the same thing. So in the, cop in the copyright world, um, because there are so many different ways to do something, Mm -hmm. um, your copyright is needs to continually be refreshed and replenished, right? Okay. If I copyright, if I have you know copyrights in some software, <clears throat> sure, right, and my competitor writes their own code to do the same thing, uh, because there are so many different, because the copyright only protects the expression and not the ultimate functionality, it's very easy to mimic what you're valuable copyright is sort of doing for the end consumer right if i if i if i log in and run a program i don't care what the code says i just want it to do something and if right. your competitor you know is able to write their own code to do the same thing that copyright that you have doesn't really have any value right yeah it doesn't because the expression it. doesn't matter it's i'm buying the functionality right correct um so you know, your copyright probably enabled you, if it was really innovative, it enabled you to be first in line with that piece of software. Right. Your competitors see what it does. They write their own code to do, to catch up, right, to do mm -hmm. what you do. That copyright's now no longer valuable. So what do you have to do? Well, you have to keep innovating, right? right. You have to keep right in putting new features and functionality so that you stay away, stay ahead of your competitors, right? Which is why, you know, every couple of weeks, you know, Apple wants me to update, you know, to the new version of iOS, right? Because they keep adding things. They have to keep doing that. If they don't do that, right, Android's going to, you know, right. Them, right. I mean, that's basically the software update upgrade model. It's why you don't just sit tight with software. Now, um, could be that you've created something incredibly valuable that, you know, you've cracked a nut that your competitors really can't and the code is, you know, incredibly valuable. Think about, you know, Google's search algorithms, right? Mm -hmm. Some of that AI stuff that is, you just, somebody just can't replicate, right? And you're right. getting better results because of your code. 
most software though is not valuable in that sense where the code is really that valuable but when it is right you still want to have your copyright because you don't want somebody you don't want to give your competitor a head start right, right? right. by having them see your code and see how to do it you have to make your competitors spend money in order to compete with you right so okay. your code is both copyrighted and trade secret it, but in that sense it, even though a copyright lasts roughly you know something like the life of the author plus 70 years so copyrights mm-hmm. go on for a long long time in a lot of time a lot of times are only valuable for like a couple of years right um right. especially especially in the high tech world in the software world. so so moving beyond the copyright so say you've written it down you've got your ingredients your 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 knowledge and methodology and know-how and and how to mix those ingredients together to achieve the result that you're after. What's the next step after the copyright to protect that trade secret information? Well, the, the, again, it's the same thing as it's, it's restricting access and it's making sure that all of the employees who would potentially have access to it are locked down with non-disclosure agreements. The other thing, Craig, that's, um, that happens is, um, there are actually, and I'm not sure what the number is, but it, but it would there there is a good number of companies that when they do any kind of product development, any kind of work, even for their customers, in the course of doing that work, you know, especially if you're a consultant, right, mm-hmm. um, you are using your trade secrets in connection with joint development with somebody else, right, um, where there is a back and forth of know-how as you're trying to work with somebody who maybe, you know, has a complementary expertise that you don't have, right? Um, Beyond just locking up your employees with non-disclosure agreements, it's incredibly important that you document those kind of relationships the right way so that people that you work with and are sharing information with um, don't walk away from the table with your confidential information and the ability to use it, right? right. Um, that's a much more difficult problem um, because sometimes for the development to work, you have to work closely and disclose confidential mm-hmm. information. Um, uh, those agreements are, you know, those joint development agreements are trying to develop something with somebody else are, are incredibly complicated. And, and the reason is because most, development fails, um, uh, especially joint development with other parties. It's risky. It, you, it probably only about 20% of the time or less actually leads to a marketable product. Um, and very often people engage in those agreements and they structure the agreements so that the parties share in some of the developed intellectual property on the assumption that a product will be developed and it will be a win-win. And the fact of the matter is most joint developments between two parties break up long before you get to, we launched the product and it failed. The development fails because somebody backs out because you couldn't get the cost right. You couldn't get the materials right. Um, it didn't It didn't pan out at the, just at the validation stage. So you never get to ramp up in commercialization. So, um, so you can't do a joint development agreement assuming that the parties will be free to walk away with what they walk away with and exploit it as if it were a success. And so um, 
very few people do joint development agreements the right way. And what they end up doing is they sit across the table from people. They have this free flow of ideas. And then when it doesn't work, they find that the agreement didn't protect them adequately. Um, that's a whole nother topic to go into, but it's a really important one. If you're doing development with somebody, it doesn't have to be a competitor, right? It could be just somebody who's in the adjacent market who has an expertise that yeah. you don't have. Yeah. Um, that's something where you want to reach out to somebody like me, for example, who's really think has thought about that and has developed, you know, processes for making sure that you do that the right way, because, so many things go wrong with the wrong kind of joint development agreement. So, the, the, but those are all parts of making sure you're protecting your intellectual property, protecting your know-how, not letting it outside, you know, your four walls. That can kind of get into um, maybe licensing, right? So like if you develop some, so say I develop a, an application, say a customer comes to us and we develop an application and we find a way to do it faster than the way that it was done before. So that's what they're buying. They're buying the speed, uh, kind of like using Google as an example. So mm -hmm. when you type something in Google, you get a search engine result page, right? A SERP. Um, right. So in the context of, of this scenario example, we are hired to develop a, a search engine for a particular client to search on some scientific factors. And we develop the result or the search engine result page on their custom engine that we are hired to build. And right. we do it in, a few seconds compared to what they were waiting before. So the, so the value is the, the speed, right? And the speed is derived by our intellectual property, our, our know-how and knowledge on the server side of how to configure that server properly, as well as on the code side. Yep. Okay. So what do you, rec so, so do you recommend, or, or maybe this is like you said, a whole nother conversation because <laughs> it goes into a whole nother rabbit hole, but it just, it, it popped in my mind as far as the question goes. So, if you sold the uh, the project as you're buying this speed from us, right? Um, is there a licensing play or a licensing component to that such that um, maybe some or all of it is licensed to them at a fee to, to use the server? Like, can you comment on that? It is a whole nother conversation, so I'll just kind of hit the highlights. Um, <laughs> yeah. But it is an incredible, it is an incredibly important conversation for people in the service industry, right? Which is where the economy is going, right? Yeah. Um, it's more about providing services than products. If I hire you to do something for me, write some code, create a product, right? I'm hiring you for your service. Very often my expectation is I'm going to own what I pay you for, right? right? You're going to develop something for me. I'm then going to own the intellectual property in that thing, right? Um, uh, by the way, that's not just a service industry issue. That is a product, you know, old school bricks and mortar business, right? Mm -hmm. When I was in the packaging world and a company like Procter & Gamble or Church & Dwight or SC Johnson or Clorox said, you know, we want a new bottle that does X, right? New bleach bottle, a new spray bottle. Coca-Cola wanted a new bottle for Powerade, right? Um, and they went to us because we were the bottle design and bottle maker experts. Um, they would want to own that bottle, right? Um, so either way, right, you can see what the customer's motivation is, and it makes sense, right? Theoretically, it makes sense. You're going to do something for me. I don't want you to then 
develop it and go sell it to my competitors. Right. Right. What am I paying you for? That's right. Then, right. Okay. Um, on the other hand, um, uh, there are certain things that you do that are embedded in that technology, which are your ordinary tools. The things in your toolbox that you do all the time that make you who you are and make you do what you do. So, so you know, let's talk about, for example, if you know Coca-Cola wants a new bottle, right? And they say, okay, uh, it's got to look like whatever because they've got their own branding, um, and it's got to have these specs, right? It has to have a certain amount of strength. It has to, you know, have a certain amount of temperature because um, things are hot filled, you know, to kill germs and stuff, right? It's got to have, you know, uh, uh, it's got to take up a vacuum because then the things are cooled, right? So all these bottles are always, you know, moving back and forth, right? There's a lot of specs that go in. Um, and they may have sort of an idea of an overall shape, but that's about it, right? Okay, fine. Um, if I create that bottle for you, I'm going to use my tools in the toolbox to make sure that that bottle performs the way that it's supposed to perform. I know how to, you know, create panels in the side that take up that vacuum without influencing, you know, how the label looks when it's wrapped around. I know how to create a base that will flex up and down that will still allow it to stand up and not, you know, end up distorted. Right. Right. Um, I know how to create the threads so that you can use a much smaller cap without, you know, creating pressure that pops off because, you know, if your threads are really deep and you need a bigger cap, that's just, you know, more plastic and it's more cost. Right. Um, Right. I know how to blow it, you know, in a big wheel that, you know, blows these plastic molds into bottles very, very quickly. Right. Um, I know how to do all that. Um, If I do an agreement with you, Coca-Cola, where I say, you know, all the intellectual property that I develop in the course of making this bottle for you, you own. How many years more am I in business when I've just given away all of the know-how that I've continuously improved, right? That I've used out of my toolbox, right? Mm-hmm. That's, that's suicide for a company, right? Yeah. Um, so what typically happens is you'll is you'll say, I will, you know, I will give you an exclusive supply or I'll even let you own the design, right? Just the shape. But anything that would constitute, for example, manufacturing technology, um, uh, you know, manufacturing know-how, those are things in my toolbox that if I improve on that, I'm going to own. Because the next customer that comes along, I need to know how to make a bottle better. If I don't know, if I don't continually learn how to make bottles better, I'm going to be out of business, right? right. You can't have that. Mm-hmm. To your point, though, um, I might give you a license to that technology so that right. you can right. use what I've learned, right? Especially if you need somebody else to supply you that bottle, right? Um, because some of these big companies won't do a sole source arrangement. Right. They're too huge. Right. It's too too risky. So they'll say, well, I need, you know, to put your competitor in business to make this very bottle that you developed for me and have all this IP. And then you go, whoa, I'm not going to give my crown jewels to your competitor. Right. To my competitor. Right. right? So that they could compete with me. Um, So very often what you'll do is you'll say, I will license certain technology. I will license 
patented technology. Things are already public. A license right. to design. Um, and there may be certain know-how that I'm willing to tell your competitor, but not all of my crown jewels. But in order for me to do that, you have to guarantee me 70% share of your supply. Right. Because otherwise it's not worth it for me. Right. And and I can and I can use that leverage because I'm better at creating bottles than my competitor. You want to work with me. Right. But but I'm not going to teach them all of my tricks mm-hmm. because then they're going to go use that and compete with somebody else. Right. Um, so when anytime you have any kind of agreement with your customers where you're developing things, you know, kind of the end product, how it appears to the consumer, which is usually more kind of ornamental design. That's not really where the secret sauce is. That's sort of one end of the dividing line. And really, when you think about it, that's what your customer wants. Your customer wants to own what the consumer-facing piece is, right? Because that's where they build the brand around, right? But the back office, how it works stuff, they probably don't really have an interest in. Even though they say they want it, they probably don't need it, right? Um, And they wouldn't know what to do with it even if they had it. And so that's where you as a supplier have to really drive a hard bargain that says, look, um, there are certain things I will give you. There are certain things that I won't give you and that I'm going to keep. And those are always going to be mine. And no matter if I improve on them in the course of doing this work that you paid me for, this is why I'm in business is to continually learn and get better. Right. Um, most customers, when you explain it and explain what they actually need and why they need it are sophisticated enough to understand that it's not always an easy conversation. Um, that goes on a lot longer than the than the salesperson would like because you know right. next thing you know you're you bled into the next quarter and they didn't get their deal done. Um, but um, you know, but that's that's an important conversation to have, and it's a very very typical conversation to have. Okay. Well, this has been awesome. <laughs> I, I just really appreciate you joining and shedding light on some of these topics. That I'm sure that my listeners have tons and tons of questions. <laughs> So tell us all how do we reach you? How do we reach out to you and contact you to get consulting from you and hire you to help them? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Um, so my email is dshulman, D-S-H-U-L-M-A-N at vetterprice.com, V-E-D-D-E-R-P-R-I-C-E.com. Um, email is the best way to reach me. I have an office phone number, but I haven't been in my office since March. <laughs> I don't know when I'm going to be back, uh, but I am picking up voicemail. So if you want to leave me a, you know, call me in my office, the number is 312-609-7530. I had to think about that because I haven't been in my office long enough. I almost forgot what my office number was. Um, and, and of course, you know, Craig, anybody wants to reach me that wants to reach out to you, you know, I, I'm sure you can you can put us in touch, and um, I'm happy to happy to help out with with any with any clients that have these kind of questions. And I referred you know earlier in the uh, earlier in the talk to, to that IP questionnaire. Um, you know, look if if there are clients that are that are just thinking about the fact that I've got intellectual property, I know I've got it, I just don't know what it is or where it right. is. I'm happy to send out that IP questionnaire and okay. do a free 30 minute assessment. So if somebody wants to fill it out, send it back to me. I can help a client figure out, all right, um, here's some of the low-hanging fruit. Here's some of the easy things that you should be doing just to make some improvements to how you're thinking about intellectual property. And, um, you know, just get on a phone call with somebody free for 30 minutes to do that. 
That's fantastic. So again, if somebody wants to reach out, access to that questionnaire, um, you know, please email, call, semaphore, smoke signals, you know, two tomato cans on the end of a rope, whatever, whatever <laughs> works, I'm available. Awesome. Thank you. And if you want, you can send the questionnaire to me. If they reach out to me, I can give it to them. Or if you prefer, you know, we'll you want yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, we'll so do. Thank, thank we'll you do. again so much. This has been fantastic. Thanks for listening to yet another episode of Cybersecurity and Compliance with Craig Petronella. Listen to all of our podcasts on Apple, Google, and Spotify. Visit us online at petronellatech.com to book a meeting with Craig about your business. Thanks for listening to the Cybersecurity and Compliance Podcast with Craig Petronella. For other episodes and more information, visit petronellatech.com. Also visit our other websites, compliancearmor.com and blockchainsecurity.com. Don't forget to like and subscribe. Thanks for listening and stay secure.